0: Thank you so much. It's so good to be here and to see your smiling faces. It feels like home again, and I cannot tell you how excited that is, excited that makes me. I had a lot of fun seeing you outside, but it was outside, it was blazing hot or freezing cold. It was like the poor weather didn't know what to do, and it had to go home. So I, I, I have to tell you this, though. That I, I recorded a video this week to, to help you to, to kind of understand, here's what's coming, here's what you need to be prepared for as we gather again and as I sat down to do that video, I sat right here. No lie, a wasp came and landed. Like, they weren't, they weren't satisfied to scare me out there. They came into my turf, right? So I'm sitting here in the, having a video, and this wasp comes and lands in my hair and, like, flitters around. And I did one of those, like, like those things. And so I didn't, that didn't make the outtakes of the video. But if you see one, please let me know. Don't let, don't let this, like, all happen and not tell me. Somebody warn me that I'm about to have my face stung off this morning. I appreciate that. So good to see you here this morning. Guys, the last three and a half months has just been wild, hasn't it? Like, weirder than anything that I ever could have imagined. Just this morning, looking around the room today, is different. Just more odd than anything I could have imagined. In March, when we decided to close off our live gatherings, I never, never imagined that we would be three and a half months before we could get together again in the service, like in the building. And through it all, we've had to deal with so many disappointments, so many cancellations of things that we've really looked forward to, things we really loved and appreciated. I mean, our schools shut down, and some of the kids were okay with that because their school day got reduced to like an hour, and then they got to play Fortnite for the other 15. So that was pretty cool. Um, I mean, hypothetic kids, of course, uh, not kids that I know. Um, Our workplaces shut down, everybody started working remotely, which was odd, kind of sharing, competing for bandwidth and screens in their homes with our kids. Sporting activities and events that we all loved, from little leagues to the big leagues, everything went down. Our fitness clubs and our gyms. The, The one, guys, the one that hurt me the most, they shut my coffee shop down. Like, they didn't even consult with me first before they did it. They like I feel like Uncommon Grounds should have said, Matt, listen, we're going to shut this down. We know you come here like six times a day. We'll open specially for you one more time so you can stock up. No, they just shut the whole thing down. I haven't mindlessly frittered time away in a coffee shop for four months. I'm dying. I'm dying. So they, they went down. Churches kind of went down, but not really. Like You might, you, you might be able to like, hinder the gathering, this kind of assembly, but you can't really shut a church down. Because the church really isn't a building. The church is a people Right? And the gates of hell can't prevail against it. That's what Jesus said. And certainly if the gates of hell can't prevail against it, then an executive order can't avail, prevail against it either. So you, you can't really shut a church down. You might be able to close off the gatherings. Thankfully, our office stayed open even in limited time. And our church continued to do what our church does. We, teach, we taught the word to people. We encouraged people to connect in groups. We were able to minister to people. We gave sacrificially above and beyond. We we were able to still be the church, and our church is actually strong, growing, healthy, in the midst of all this crazy. And as we've navigated all that change, it became clear to us that was most important, what is most essential in our lives, and it also became clear to us what wasn't. Things that we had made a priority that didn't need to be a priority. We had to learn the truth of that old adage that necessity is indeed the mother of invention, which simply means that when we're forced because we don't have any resources. Don't it? When we're forced to make an effort, we have to get real creative to fix problems. And we did. We found creative ways to get together. Creative ways to serve each other. Churches began to meet virtually through video messaging. We all got pretty good at Zoom meetings and birthday parades and worship in our jammies. Like it, we, we made it work as best we could. And even now, as we re-engage, I mean, look around, we're still dealing We're still dealing with differences. We're still dealing with some restrictions. We can't have BBS this summer. Our youth group's still not meeting yet in person. We're still trying to navigate through some of this. But I want to remind us again, and what I want to talk about today and over the next couple weeks, is that even though we're, we're changing and seeing differences in the way that we're meeting together, that the essential things of the church are still just that, essential. And they haven't changed. And they can't be stopped. And they can't be held back. Because God is doing a work that the works of this world can't touch. And so we're going to take a break from the Gospel of Mark for three weeks, and we're going to do a quick series, and we're just going to call it Essential. We're going to talk about the essential nature of the church, the essential membership of the church, the essential mission of the church, and hopefully encourage ourselves with the fact that even though there are some restrictions on how we're gathering together in groups, there's nothing that can restrict the movement of God through the people of God, into the communities that we live in. Nothing at all. Those things are essential, and they won't stop. So, brief conversation today on the essential nature of church. I'm going to ask and answer two questions, and then bring it into a close. So the first is this, what is the church? The second is, what is the church like? Okay? The first question, what is the church? Excuse me, sometimes it's easier to offer clarity and definitions by talking first about what something is not. Okay? So we could jump right into like a healthy definition or we could just give me a little bit of room here. What is the, it's, it's not a certain number of things. The church is not a building. Right? I think we all know that. The, the, the church isn't just this campus. Even though I'm, I'm guilty of, of that terminology. I mean, I, I spend a few nights a week here. Um doing meetings or counseling, things like that. And so often I'll, I'll finish up dinner at home and I'll grab my bag and I'll head out the door and the kids will say, where are you going? And I'll say, well, I'm going to church. Meaning that I'm going to the building. I'm going to the office that, that I spend my time in. It, I'm guilty of it myself. But, but the church isn't a building. You know, for the first few hundred years, like 300 years or so of the church's existence, they didn't actually own buildings. They just met in people's homes and in open spaces where they could gather. That wasn't part of the initial setup of the the church. I think we know that. I I like the way that the New Englanders talked about the meeting houses. Because the church itself is a meeting house. It is a place where the gathering happens, where an assembly happens. It's an assembly space. I like the way that they talked about that. The the church isn't a building. I think think we're all clear on that. You know, the church isn't an enterprise. It's not a business. It's not like a coffee shop or a deli. Even though there are aspects of our, our organization, because there's a few hundred people that call this place home and there's a lot that we have to manage, we do borrow from um, conventional wisdom in, in areas of business systems. There are things that are very helpful if we, if we lean on that wisdom to apply to the church. But at the end of the day, we don't exist for a bottom line. We're not existing to make a profit. We're not marketing and selling any product. We are, we are a family joined together carrying a message, but we don't exist in order for, to gain uh, financially from this world. And so it, it, even though the IRS recognizes us as a not-for-profit business, and that's how they categorize us, we aren't an enterprise. We're not a business. It's not, it doesn't work that way. We're not a social club. Now, some of us, some of us grew, grew up in circles and in churches where the gospel wasn't preached, and, and it, it resorted to nothing more than a social club. And the reason people were going wasn't because they were being built up and edified through the ministry of the word of God, but because it's what you do to meet your extended family and your neighbors, and that's what people did. It was a social experiment, a social exercise. No, the church isn't like a rod and gun club. It's not like a knitting club or a, a German-American heritage club, which, by the way, if there is such a thing as one of those, I would like to know about it because I think that would be a lot of fun because I don't, I don't get good German food ever. That would be pretty cool to eat bratwurst and spetzel or something. So if you hear about that, let me know. We'll get back to my notes here. Even though members of a local congregation, we might share a ton of things in common, we don't gather around common interests we gather around the common saving grace of Jesus, right? We, we gather around a savior. We don't gather around common interests, even though the gathering is one of the uh, most critical and beneficial parts of the church itself. All right, so it, it's not a building, and, and it's not a corporate, it's not a business, and, and it's not a social club. Then what is it? The church is the people, Right? It's the people of God who, through faith in Jesus, have been welcomed into God's family. You know, the word that the New Testament uses for church is a word, ekklesia. And it was a very popular Greek word outside of church use. And it simply meant an assembly, a gathering, a, a congregation of sorts, a, play, a, a group of people meeting together. And they could meet for all different kinds of purposes. But the word itself is the gathering of the people, Wayne Grudem offers this definition: all the the church is all true believers for all time, and that that's not without some difficulty, because the church of the New Testament experiences Jesus in in a slightly different way than the than the people of God in the Old Testament. I mean, in the New Testament, we receive the Spirit, we're baptized in the Spirit, we're sealed in the Spirit, and in the Old Testament, the Spirit came upon. The believers to empower them. It was different in the New Testament era of the church. We look back and we see the clarifying ministry of Jesus as he fulfilled the law and the prophets and demonstrated this kingdom life on earth. And in the Old Testament, they had to look forward in hopes that someday that would come. And so there is a little differences, but but at the same time, those of us who are walking with Jesus today through faith, we are told in Hebrews twelve to look at that great cloud of witnesses. Full of Old Testament saints, who just like us believed God and had it counted to them as righteousness. So the the church is huge. It's it, it spans generations. It goes back centuries, millennia. The church is massive and global. It it breaks over race lines and geography and socioeconomic classes. It, the church is, in that sense, all people who are true believers in Jesus, who have trusted Christ, those people are all united together, and, and theologians call that the invisible church. It's, it's huge and global, and you can't see it because it doesn't all gather together at one time, because there's no place to put that many people. And they're not all in the same place. It is invisible in that sense, that big C church made up of local expressions of the church, like ours. And theologians would call that the visible church. It's, it's seen and observed and measured when out of the different places of life we come together and we gather and now we can see visibly the church. And these local assemblies, this is what we're familiar with when we talk about the church, right? We think about the church in terms of our experiences in the, the groups of people that we've been part of. They include the local members, the local leaders, the pastors, the ministries, the buildings and facilities, and all these things that marked what we understand it it to mean to be part of a church. But the common element there is that all true members of the church share a common faith in Jesus. Because as we're told very clearly by the Apostle Paul, there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism into the one Spirit of God. And all who are united there in the church, we share that in common. Regardless of geography, ethnicity, past morality, or lack thereof, intellect, education, reg- no, no, no. What, what binds us together, what we share in common, is faith in Jesus Christ. So, so that's the, and, and the good news is, for some, for some bodies of believers, that's like the only thing we share in common. There's people in this room on all different ends of every spectrum you can come up with. Like for every major issue we're dealing with today, you could, you could, we could draw a line down the middle, and we could say, All right, if you line up with this thought, you go over there, and we could split the room and and we'd see that in every major issue, there's people at every stop along the way. And sometimes it feels like the only thing that binds us together is Jesus Christ. What a testimony to the community. What a testimony to a world that's splintering and breaking apart, dividing themselves apart, that a group of people can gather together and cross over all those differences and still love each other as a family, right? What a testimony. You know, Jesus said, the world's going to know you're my disciples, not by your bumper stickers or your t-shirts, but by the way you love one another, right? demonstrate that to a watching world okay so that's the definition with some important notes but that still seems a little unclear and kind of feels like the opening lecture on a study on the doctrine of the church so let's bring that down to a day-to-day level the church is visible and invisible it is big global yet local expressive it is the community of people who believe in jesus gotcha but what does that mean today to me to you in this place thankfully Thankfully, God has given us examples in the scripture where he shows us what the church is like. He uses metaphors and imagery to help New Testament believers understand how their relationships in the New Testament church are supposed to look. And he uses things that we would be familiar with. You see, God is not a God of confusion. And many times, God takes big picture theological things that could cause us to stay up all night scratching our heads and reveals them to us in terms we can understand to help us. So what is the church like? Describing what something is like is always fun. Like Sometimes I go to a mechanic, and I, um, I'm getting better at like house projects as I get older willing to tackle more things, but I'm still terrified of my vehicle. Like I'll put, I'll put new washer fluid in it, maybe in, maybe some oil from time to time, but I'm not touching anything. because that thing can kill me. Like I, I race down the road at 70 miles an hour and that thing. I'm not messing around under there. I don't know what I'm doing. So I go to the mechanic and I say, I think there's something wrong in the car. And the mechanic says, well, what's wrong? And the mechanic asks that question thinking you're going to say, well, the alternator is messed up or I need you to change the flux capacitor because it doesn't generate 1.21 gigawatts or something, right? And I say things like, well, it kind of makes that knocking noise. It's kind of like it does this. And I try to explain to him what's going on. And I'm sure he's having a great time watching me make a fool of myself because I don't know what I'm talking about. Sometimes when we try to explain to children something they've never seen or experienced, we, we, use, we use illustrations that are like something they remember. You know, my parents bought a new house and my kids are asking, what's it like? And I said, well, it's kind of like their old one, but different in that it, it has a living room like this other person's house that we've been in. And we try to explain it to them in terms that they can understand. God has done that to us, for us, with the New Testament he has explained to us many different places what the church is like so that you and I, as believers, can understand how our relationships within the church are supposed to work. And in so, so here's a couple of examples. There's a lot more, but here's a couple. The church is like a flock. Jesus himself used this illustration in John chapter 10. I don't know if you remember it or not, but he talks about how... Um, how there is a thief, a robber coming to destroy the flock of God's sheep. And the one who enters by the door, he's the shepherd, he says. And to him, to the shepherd, the gatekeeper will open because he's the rightful shepherd. He's allowed to come in and move among his sheep. And he says that the sheep hear his voice and, and he calls his own sheep by name and he leads them. He is the shepherd. He actually says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep in, first John, or in John chapter 10, verse 11 see, Jesus identifies the people of God as his flock and then identifies himself as their shepherd and goes on to talk about how as the good shepherd he lays down his life for the sheep. So not only is he also says in verse 7, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep all who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal, to kill and destroy, but I have come that they might have life and have it abundantly. And Jesus says, "I'm the one. I'm the, I'm the avenue. I, you are the church, you are the, my followers. you're the flock of God's people. You have to come through me to get in there which is exactly what he says, right? I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus said, I, I'm the door. And then he says, I'll even lay my life down to protect the sheep, to fight off the enemy. The church is a, that should give us a little bit of um, clarity on, on who we are. Sheep are not the most aggressive people. They're not the brightest, the brightest group of animals They can't really defend themselves all that much. They can kind of like nuzzle you to death, right? But that's about it. They're they're a little bit wayward. They need constant reminders of what to do. I mean, you have to like hire dogs to like race around the outside and nip at their heels to keep them where they're supposed to be because they'll just wander off and hurt themselves. Jesus says, That's the church. That's my people. You are my people. You're my flock. I'm your shepherd. But what's most clear here is that the sheep hear the shepherd's voice and they follow him. They listen to his word and they follow him. Okay, so that's one illustration, that's one example. So the church, the people of God then, are people who are united in faith in Jesus, are people who make a habit, a regular pattern of listening to the voice of the shepherd and following where he leads them. Okay. Another illustration that the Bible uses is this of the the bride, the bride of Christ. Ephesians 5, in that passage, Paul's talking about the beautiful covenant of marriage. And he says that women, wives, you're to be subject to your own husbands as unto the Lord. You're to honor them, to submit to them, not because you're inferior, but because God created this order in the home and it honors him. So honor them as you honor the Lord. Then he says, husbands, don't think you get off of this thing easy. You have to be willing to lay down your life for your wife. You have to love her as Christ loved the church. And he loved the church by dying, giving himself up for her. And he loves the church by washing her with the water of the word and purifying her, sanctifying her, in order that he might present her pure and blameless. Husbands, you have a calling, he says, to love your wife, to serve your wife, to set an example of sacrificial, selfless love in order to see her grow in her faith and grow in her purity and her her holiness. And then he closes up, he says, this mystery is great, but I'm really going to shock you. This is about Christ and his church. He takes this foundational human relationship, this centerpiece of society, in a way that we can finally understand. And he says, this mystery of husbands and wives and covenants, this is referring to Christ and his church. And Jesus, the bridegroom, the, the bride being, or the yeah, the." the bride being the the church family. (laughs) The church is the bride of Christ. It should tell us something about his love for us and his commitment to us. And when he says, I'll be with you always to the ends of the age, it's kind of like he's saying till death do us part. He's telling us something about his enduring faithfulness in our lives. He's telling us something about his ministry in our lives that he will continue to provide, to protect, to lead, and to love sacrificially. The church is also the body of Christ. And this is going to occupy my time next week, so I'm not going to read uh, a ton of it this morning. But 1 Corinthians 12, 12-27 is where we're going to be next week. That passage describes the church in terms of the many parts that work together. That each person who is part of the body of Christ, each member of the church, each true believer in Jesus, has been given a spiritual gift Or more than one spiritual gift. And the purpose of those gifts is that we would use them to serve the body so it's built up in love. And that when we're all using our gifts, when we're giving of ourselves, serving the body, the body is growing and it's healthy and it's strong. Just like the human body has all these different parts that work together and no one part of them is primary over all the others. And no one part is independent of all the others, but they are interdependent and all work together. So it should tell us a little something about the value that we bring. It should tell us a little something that we'll talk about next week about not, not comparing ourselves to one another, not being upset because somebody has a different gift or different role or different part to play than I do, but just to be content in the part that God called me to play. Sometimes I feel like an appendix now some of you have an appendix and you're thankful for it and some of you don't and you wonder what it does. I feel the same way sometimes. Like, I look out, I see some of my friends and I'm like, at the end of their work week, they have a house that they built. They have the system that they designed. They have a, and sometimes I wonder, wow, it would be nice. It'd be nice to have a different role from time to time. No, just play your part. Do what God called you to do because when you do your part, And they do their part. Together, all the parts work together. And it's a beautiful depiction of the fullness of Jesus in a congregation. We'll talk more about that next week. But the body of Christ is one way. And it's supposed to show us a lot about the interdependence of the the individual members of the congregation and supposed to show us a lot about the gifts that God has given, that they are to be surrendered and used for the good of the body the one that I think is most challenging and most helpful is the imagery of family. The church is a family. And now, now for somebody like us, my wife and I and our kids, we moved up here 15 years ago. Our closest relatives are like 11 hours away. They they vary from 11 to 14 hours away from us. So, we don't have in-laws and cousins and aunts and uncles anywhere near us. We don't, sometimes our holiday celebrations are pretty sparse, it's, just, it's like the six of us, right? We don't have the, the, the cheering section at the Little League games, we, we, don't, we don't have that same experience, but do you know what we do have? We have brothers and sisters and cousins and aunts and uncles and parents right here in the congregation that we have enjoyed growing together with, and you've served us and loved us and ministered well to us, and so the family aspect, for, for me, the church is my family. They're like a big extended family. There's a lot of you, it makes me kind of crazy sometimes, but it's a big extended family. And I, don't, I don't know how you feel about me, but I'm, I'm sure it makes you crazy sometimes too because I'm a bit of a loose cannon some days. You should have heard me in the first service. That's off the rails. All right, it's a family. Remember, God identifies himself as our father. We're told that we are, Those who come to him by faith are sons and daughters of the living God. We're we're told that we're joint heirs with Jesus the Son. One of the primary images of of salvation is that we are adopted into God's family. Born again into the family of God. Listen listen to what Paul tells Timothy in, in 1 Timothy chapter 5. You can go there if you want. 1 Timothy chapter 5. Uh, Verse 1 and 2, maybe 3. I haven't decided yet. (laughs) All right. He says this. Talking about the family dynamics and the relationships in the church, he says, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Okay, now stop right there. This is likely written in an era where it was societally deemed inappropriate to treat your father harshly. Obviously, this is not America in the 21st century, right? But that should be a wake-up call to those of us in America in the 21st century, that what honors the Lord is to not speak harshly to older men because it's just it's expected here that we would be treating our fathers with honor and respect. Right? We all get that. It's inappropriate to treat any other older man harshly and rebuke him because we would never do that to our dads. That's a good lesson for those of us who get a little mouthy from time to time. All right? It's a good lesson I want my children to know sometime later when I'm senile and do crazy things, okay? So just be kind to me. Don't rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. What is he saying? The church is a family. And the way that respect and honor govern the family unit, or they're supposed to, that same grace is to be extended to the members of the church family. We are to treat each other in that way. The relationships within the church family are to be similar to those family relationships. Love, honor, respect, kindness, and concern. Reminders of, uh, to us that the thing that binds families together is blood. And we all know that blood is thicker than water. At the end of the day, you stick with your family because that's all you got, right? It's the same in the family of God. The blood of Jesus is the essential thing that binds us together and that is a stronger bond than anything this world can throw at us. So we preserve it and we fight for it and we do everything we can to make sure we maintain that bond of the spirit in peace. All right. Some honorable mentions that we didn't get to today. The branches and the vine, especially from John 15, is really cool. Um, the, uh, The building... Not like the facility, but, but God is building up the church on the chief cornerstone, Jesus. A field, that's one illustration. I kind of like, like that one because we're all growing to a fruitful harvest, and some of us look like we've been hit by the blight or the, t- the potato famine or something. We're, we're, we're kind of stunted in our growth, and we need to be fruitful, and it gives me hope because there's another season coming, I can grow, you know. The new temple made up not of the uh, stones of, of this earth, but living stones in 1 Peter. All right, so what? What does all of that mean? That's what the church, it's what it's like. How, how can we apply that today? What are we gonna grab onto? The first is the church isn't a building, it's not a social club, it's not a business. The church is the people of God who've been called out of darkness and into light. God in his mercy snatched them up from the mess they were living in and through faith united them together into a new group of people. That's what the church is. It is worldwide and global. It is, it is invisible in that sense, but it is local and intimate and real and familial, and it's right here. It is visible to us as well. When we talk about the church, the church hasn't shut down because the church can't shut down. The church is the people of God under the leadership of God, carrying the message of God. You can't stop that. Not with an executive order, not a famine, not even persecution can stop that. The the message of the gospel is still going to go forward. In fact, the more they try to tighten up and shut it down, the greater the church grows. The blood of the martyrs has always been the seed of the church. It'll continue to be the same for us. Secondly, the metaphors that God uses teach us something. The flock and the shepherd, that metaphor teaches us to adopt a bit of a group identity. We're part of this family, we're part of this group, we're part of this flock and we follow our shepherd together. The metaphor of the bride tells us something about the enduring commitment that Jesus made to his church. The metaphor of the body tells us something about the vital roles that each one of us play, our gifts and our abilities to be used in order to serve the other members. And the metaphor of the family reminds us that the love that we are to show one another and reminds us that the thing that binds us together is better and stronger than the things that could otherwise pull us apart. And the same way we set aside some of the lesser things, the personal ideologies and preferences, in order to love the family, in a church family, we do the same. And here's what, here's what really struck me. The bigger the family, the more grace you got to give. Amen. Right? Any of you come from, I came from a large family, right? My and, and when I was growing up, my friends used to laugh. I would walk down the street, and everybody I met was related to me. It's a big, big family. My grandparents had lived there for a long time. My grandfather's family went back many generations. So it was, a, it was a big family. The more people you have in your family, the more grace you have to give because the more differences you bring. And I thought about this. thought about this. Yesterday was the 4th of July, and around the capital region, people were gathering with their family all over the place. And I imagine that this current season is a challenging time to gather together with family, right? Because as you gather together with family, it is an exercise in patience and self-control and biting your tongue. Because as you've got all these people in one room or one place, you're you're working the grill, and you've got people on every end of every spectrum that you can come up with. So you've got personality differences, and you know that there's always that one guy in your family that you just don't get along with because of the personality Nothing 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 like inherently wrong with him, you just like you like you're talking past each other. Alright, maybe you don't have that, that's fine. Alright, so you got the personality differences, you might have political differences, because in everybody's family, you got that one uncle who wears his red MAGA hat everywhere he goes, and you got the other guy who's like got the Prius that said I voted with her, you know, from like two thousand like four years ago. And so you know that if you start a political conversation, it's gonna blow up, right? think about everything else that's going on in the world right now you might have COVID differences right so in in our family if we all gathered together with my extended family you'd have people on one side of the argument that say listen I've done the research I personally believe that this whole COVID thing is a hoax and it was a ploy and it's it's a liberal um it's a liberal progressive uh, attempt to destabilize America and then on the other side you've got a group of people say no I've seen people die from this thing. It's really dangerous, and it's going to kill people. We have to be careful. You want to have fun? Watch those two talk it out, right? No, you don't do that at a family gathering, right? I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but racial tension is at an all-time high. On one side of the argument, you've got a group of people who say, look, I've done the research, I personally don't believe that there is systemic oppression of people of color within the culture, and I don't believe that it's, it helps anything by talking about it. I don't believe that white privilege is a thing. I think this is all just made up in an attempt to destabilize the, the, the country. And on the other side, you got a group of people who say, well, no, that's ridiculous. I know people. I can, I can point to all these examples. Here's what happens. You want to have fun? Watch those two argue it out. And you're just there trying to cook a bratwurst, Right? He's like, I just want my bacon cheeseburger. I don't want to deal with my brother-in-law and try to figure this out. I have a brother-in-law. My goodness, he's a Washington Redskins fan. Do you know how hard that is for me? <laughs> you know how hard that is for me to deal with him. Here's the point. Here's the point. Good families have learned that there are essential things. Essential things that bind the family together. And those essential things are more important than what they, they determine are non-essential. And so they don't tear each other down. Instead, they preserve what they hold in common. And out of love for one another, seek understanding and humility they clothe themselves with love. They bear with one another. They're patient with one another. What, why am I bringing all that up? Because in the church family, in, and sometimes I talk about the church in big picture terms. I don't know. In this church family, I'm talking about, in this church family, right here, us, right? In our church family, there, I, just, I just messed up the live stream, I'm sorry. In our church family, sorry, there's, there used to be lines up here that like, told me where I could go. In our church family, there are people on all different sides of those spectrums. And we very easily could, could just do nothing but spit division in our church. Or we can come together and we can say that the thing that binds us together is so sacred to us so important to us, so essential to who we are as, as people of God, that we will let that define us and seek to love one another in the name of Jesus. And I would offer, as I've had to learn myself the hard way, that that extends not only to our verbal interactions, but our virtual interactions as well. Think through clearly what you're saying and typing to people that you love in Jesus when we get to heaven I don't mean to bust your bubble but there's not going to be a blue line and a red line that that you, you do in waiting to get in there's there's not like a libertarian section and a democrat section and a republican section. you know that right we do know that the real enemy isn't people who think politically different than you The real enemy isn't people who have a different sexual identity. No, no, no. no. The real enemy isn't people who who have different views on COVID and politics and race. The real enemy is the enemy, Satan, who's seeking to destroy, kill, devour. He's the real enemy. The real shepherd is Jesus who laid his life down to protect us from him. People are not the enemy. No, no, no. What, What would happen? Guys, I, I have to tell you this. The church has to lead the way. We are the only organization where diversity isn't mandated. They're not checking up, right? Diversity is the beauty of the gospel. Because people who otherwise shouldn't be lumped together are treating each other like they love each other. Like brothers and sisters, moms and dads caring for each other, meeting needs, biting our tongues, and serving each other, listening and hearing and bearing each other's burdens. And when a divided world sees that, that is a testimony that the gospel is at work. That is, if you remember, how the world knows we are Jesus' disciples, by the way we love one another. All right say all that to say this, as we are resuming whatever normal looks like for us, and apparently it looks like this for a while. That's cool. It's weird, but it's all right. We'll make it work. As we are resuming, there's a whole lot that we're not doing right now. But can we please just remember that the most important things that we share in common have not been hindered by this? Not persecution, not an executive order, not a pandemic, The unity that we share through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ has not been hindered in any way. And in fact, if we understand that trials produce faith and perseverance, I would argue just the opposite. I would argue that what the enemy has intended for evil, to to split, divide, and break the church, God is using to bind up, to heal, and strengthen the church. And I've seen it here in this church, and I want to see more of it. So even even though things are a little different, The most important things are still the same. And let's be a people who major on the important things. Not people who get lost in the weeds. People who are willing to submit their preferences to one another. People who are willing to hear each other, to listen, to bear each other's burdens, to support each other. Let's let the blood of Christ really be the banner over us. And not any other marker. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, for its power the way it ministers to us and soothes us, the way it confronts us and challenges us and pierces us and then binds us up again. Lord, we pray for your wisdom. Lord, as a pastor, I've, I've never needed it more than I do in this season. Our elders have never needed it more than we do right now. God, just give us understanding and wisdom And in the midst of all of this, Jesus, strengthen your church. Build us up. Remind us again today That we're not a building, we're not an enterprise, not a social club. We are your people, purchased by your blood, united through faith in in your death for us. And God, you've mobilized us to carry this message to the, the community. Remind us that none of that has changed. In the midst of everything else that has changed, that has not And so God, strengthen us around those essential pieces and may we be fruitful for you, content in you, peaceful in you. May we guard this unity of the spirit. May we give ourselves to protecting that bond of peace because it's a message to the watching world of the glory of the gospel. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. At this point, we're going to have to say goodbye to those uh, joining on the live stream. So thank you for joining in, in again today. Uh, As always, stay aware of our social media accounts and make sure that you're checking in. Uh, We'll be posting any updates uh, about service times and announcements, things like that there. Hope to see you next week, 9 and 11, here for live services. At this point, we're gonna turn it over to Matt and the worship team. Thanks.